an overview message of developing a biblical worldview, I gave you a handout that shows the major components of what we're going to be looking at in the coming months. Uh, that's subject to change, so it's not necessarily going to be exactly the way the overall outline is, but those are the major categories that we're going to cover. And I want to start this evening uh, focusing on what it means to develop a biblical worldview really in an introductory and overview message. And uh, we have some key verses that we're going to work from in the study. And the first one is in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 12, where it says, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. And then Colossians 2 and verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And then the third uh, passage is James 1 and verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So there is a biblical perspective about our physical and spiritual lives about the world, about the big picture stuff, as well as the specific things that are applicable to our lives. And um, Trevin Wax uh, wrote something related to this, and he said, capitalism, socialism, postmodernism, consumerism, relativism, pluralism, all sorts of isms exist in our world, each representing a different outlook on humanity, each with different opinions about the way society should function and how people should behave. Each of these began with an idea, an idea that would be rooted in a worldview. Now, historically, the concept of worldview is a fairly recent construct in Christian thought as it relates to the actual formality of the framework of a biblical worldview. That's not to say that Christians haven't always thought about worldview and that the people of God haven't always been guided by the Word of God. But the terminology of biblical worldview or Christian worldview really began to take shape in the 19th century. And that's when the concept took hold and people started to write and think more formally about it. And there was a lot more available on the subject. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard gave the terminology technical meaning and a life view or worldview was the fundamental perspective that undergirded a person's self-understanding and gave unity to thought and to action. The Scottish theologian James Orr and then the Dutch statesman Abraham Kuyper uh, both presented the Christian faith as a total view of reality and then it's been developed from there and there's a lot of different books and things that are available on the Christian worldview or on the biblical worldview. So I want to give you some worldview definitions just to help us think toward the subject and put it into perspective so that we can uh, kind of be on the same page as we think through it this evening and as I give you this introduction. Uh, the, the first definition is from Philip Ryken, and he said this, a worldview is a specific way a person views important moral theological, and social aspects of the world. It is the framework a person brings to decision-making. It can also be described as the lens that colors the way we see the world 
around us. Ronald Nash put it this way. He said a worldview comprises one's collection of presuppositions, convictions, and values from which a person tries to understand and make sense out of the world and of life. Gary Phillips said a worldview is, first of all, an explanation of the world, and second of all, an application of this view to life. Now, we have a biblical worldview crisis in Christianity, in churches. I think in large part because of the low level of biblical literacy. Um, it's no secret that many people that attend church, even on a fairly regular basis or what they would consider to be regular, don't open their Bibles hardly at all when they're not in church and somebody's not teaching it or reading it to them. And there's a lack of an understanding of what a biblical worldview is about because there's a lack of an understanding of the Bible itself. Uh, Barna Research and the American Worldview Inventory of 2023 found several things that were interesting. Uh, first of all, the majority of Americans still consider themselves to be Christians, which is a whole other subject. Uh, there are probably somewhere around 60 to 70 million evangelicals in the United States. Of these, a shockingly small percentage of people actually hold to a consistent biblical worldview. Among many practicing Christians, to make things worse, many agree with ideas that are rooted in new spirituality. There are ideas that are associated with Marxism and ideas that are rooted in secularism. There are, there are a lot of ideas out there that professing believers hold to that are absolutely contrary to the Bible. You cannot say that you have a biblical worldview if your views are in contradiction to the Bible. That ought to not even have to be said, but it's a case uh, that is very important uh, to point out. Uh, and it's not getting any better because less than a third of Americans, and that may be a high number, uh, actually attend a church service during a typical week. So we have a biblical worldview crisis. And as a result of that, people are soaking in what the uh, religion of politics is teaching them. They're soaking in what the religion of culture is teaching them. They're soaking in all these different alternative ideas that are further confusing them and leading them away from a biblical worldview. So a biblical worldview answers at least six key questions. And that's what we're going to spend the balance of our evening on is these six key questions that a biblical worldview will answer. The first has to do with origin and how did it all begin. And that's the starting place because if we get off track with the starting place, we're not going to end up anywhere good. We begin with an understanding of who the triune God is. I remember one time in a church history class that I had, it was it was if not my favorite class in all seminary classes I ever took, it was definitely in my top three. And at the time, I was pastoring about a, an hour away from the seminary, and I, and I took a 7.30 a.m. class. And I took it two days a week, so I would leave about 6 o'clock so I could get there and get across campus and everything and, and get to the seminary uh, class that I had. And I was engaged the entire time. I cannot say that with all classes, but I was engaged in the entire time in this particular class just because it was, it was such a great class. And our professor, when asked, what is the 
most important doctrine on which all other doctrines are built that is it's non-negotiable because if you, if you don't get this right you're not going to get anything else right and his answer was hands down the trinity and he went on to explain why he believed the trinity to be the most important doctrine because uh, our understanding of who god is is going to inform everything else and i've come to understand that better over time because it's the unifying factor of how we understand everything that we believe about our faith. And the Trinity is important because it helps describe and understand the nature of God. Now here's what our Baptist Faith and Message 2000 has to say about uh, the triune God. There is one and only one living and true God. He is an intelligent, spiritual, and personal being the creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. God is infinite in holiness and all other perfections. God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and his perfect knowledge extends to all things, past, present, and future, including the future decisions of his free creatures. And then it continues. To him we owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. The eternal triune God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. So we understand from the Bible that there is one God who exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is, and this is the classic statement about the Trinity, God is one in essence, and he is three in person. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who are co-equal and co-eternal. And then when we begin with our understanding of the triune God, we begin with the same idea that the Bible begins with. In the beginning, God. Genesis 1 and verse 1. Genesis 1 and verse 2 says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then we get to the creation account of humanity in Genesis 1 and verse 26, and it says, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then, of course, the words of Jesus in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we believe that there is one God. He exists in three persons. God the Father is referred to as God in the Scripture. God the Son is referred to as God in the Scripture. And God the Holy Spirit is referred to in the same way. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one in essence and three in person, indivisible. Now, there have been many attempts to describe the Trinity, which always falls short. I would caution you, especially if you're working with uh, young people and you're looking for some uh, sharp illustration about the Trinity, just don't, because it's probably going to be a fallacy somewhere along the way. That said, I'm going to break my own rule here just slightly. Uh, with a concept from Dr. Henry Morris, who is a noted scientist. And he notes that the entire universe is by Trinitarian design. Now, I want you to listen to this carefully, the way he develops this. He said the universe consists of three things, matter, 
space, and time. If you take away any of those three things, the universe would not exist. So you can think about it this way. Matter is mass plus energy plus motion. Space is length plus height plus breadth. Time is past, present, and future. And what he's saying is, even in the, in the design of the universe, we can see the fingerprints of God. We, we can see the, the creative hand of God. We can see the origins that are connected to who he is, not just what he has done. The Father is the source of the universe. He is the divine revelation. He is salvation embodied because of his grace and mercy. The Son is the agent through whom the Father carried out creation, carried out salvation, and will eventually carry out judgment in the future because the Bible says that the Father has entrusted judgment to the Son. Jesus will be the agent of judgment. The Holy Spirit inspired divine revelation. So the Bible that we have is inspired by God. It's breathed out to us from God. And it's the Holy Spirit who brings conviction and regeneration and salvation. And he also has the role of glorifying the Son. And the way the Scripture states it is that the, that the Spirit of God has the role of convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment, and then of always pointing back to God the Son. I like what uh, St. Augustine wrote in his work on, on Christian doctrine. He said, It's not easy to find a name that will suitably express so great of an excellence, unless it is better to speak in this way. The Trinity, one God, of whom are all things, through whom are all things, and in whom are all things. Thus, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and each of these by himself, is God. And at the same time, they are all one God, and each of them by himself is a complete substance, and yet they are all one substance. The Father is not the Son, nor the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father, nor the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, nor the Son, but the Father is only Father. The Son is only Son, and the Holy Spirit is only Holy Spirit. To all three belong the same eternity, the same unchangeableness, the same majesty, the same power. And in the Father is unity, in the Son, equality, and in the Holy Spirit, the harmony of unity and equality. And these three attributes are all one because of the Father, all equal because of the Son, and all harmonious because of the Holy Spirit. So we begin with talking about the triune God. His ways are not our ways. Human language is limited in the, in the extent that we can explain him, but we explain him according to how he has revealed himself. And that brings us to creation and how God has manifested his power in creation. Now we know that God alone created everything that there is out of nothing. If that is true, and I believe it is from the Bible, then it's God who gives existence and form to everything that there is in creation. So God spoke everything that there is into being. The sky, the planets, the seas, the vegetation, the animals, everything else. And what we believe in the doctrine of creation is that God created these things ex nihilo, meaning out of nothing. So when I make something, which I'm not very good at, 
regardless, but if I had the ability to make something, um, I would have to take materials that were already in existence. And I would have to take those materials and I have to do something with them that was creative. Some of you are builders, some of you are in the trades. You understand what I'm saying? That you take already existing materials and you make something good out of them. God created out of nothing. He did not create out of pre-existing material. And as I stated already in Genesis 1 and verse 1, it says, in the beginning, God, but the other part of that is, created the heavens and the earth. So the first four words of the Bible emphasize God. Before anything else existed, God already was. He is self-existent, and he is eternally self-existent. And he created everything that there is in totality, and therefore is the source and the sustainer. One theologian called the doctrine of creation the starting point of true religion because we start with who God is and then we understand what God has done. So I believe that God created the world in six 24-hour days and he rested on the seventh. Now, there are things around creation that we don't know. We won't know on this side of eternity. Uh, We don't know if God might have created certain things or Uh, even a lot of things with apparent age where it looked like it was uh, mature even when it was created. Uh, We don't know fully or understand fully the effect of a global flood that the Bible teaches, but that's certainly a major impact on how we would understand the world and and even the age of the world and the things that um, are in creation. Um, But I believe on faith that God created the world just as the Bible and the record of the scripture indicates. So how did it all begin? The answer is, God is eternally and self-existent, and he created all that is good. That's how it began. God is eternally and self-existent, and he created all that is good. Question number two relates to identity. And the question is, what does it mean to be human? This speaks now to the image of God in us or what we would refer to as the Imago Dei. The Hebrew word for image refers to a hewn or carved image. So it would be like a statue. And if you had a statue that was carved for the purpose of representing something else and it was a hewn or a carved image, it's going to bear a strong resemblance to whatever it was created to represent. So uh, it, we, we would say something even more modern like this in a uh, kind of a contemporary silly sense, uh, like a bobblehead doll, for example. They create that bobblehead doll, and, and it doesn't look exactly like the person, but it, it's got the likeness, and you know who it is when you look at it. And it's typically some kind of sports figure, political figure, or maybe you can get one made for yourself if you think that's uh, humorous. Uh, but at any rate, it's intended to, for when you look at it, for you to know what it is. The word for likeness actually means a facsimile, just like if you sent a fax or sent a document and it was the same as whatever it was that you sent. Now, in ancient times, an idol to a false god might be found in a temple. And it would be the place, supposedly, of course, we know it's not to be true, but it was supposed to be the place where gods with a lowercase g and people supposedly connected. The idols that they made and that they would set up in these temples to the false gods functioned as a reflection 
of and an embodiment of the God that it was supposed to represent. So the idol was not seen as God. They didn't think that this particular idol was God itself. They saw it as a representation of whatever God it was that they were worshiping. Now, obviously, this is 100% forbidden by God, and it's a big no-no. But this illustration provides a bit of insight into how we might begin to think about the image of God in us. We were made to resemble God in the, in the spiritual sense, uh, particularly. The image of God points to the immaterial part of people that sets us apart from the animal world. Um, and on the last day of creation, God said, Genesis 1 and verse 26, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. God formed Adam from the dust and he gave him life. And we understand that people are unique among all of God's creation, having both a physical body and a soul or a spirit. Now, we're taught, and we're going to get to this later on as we look at the different worldviews, that man is nothing more than another animal with base desires and functions just like any other animal. That's the dead-end teaching of naturalism. And it's wrong because we've been created in the image of of God. God formed Adam from the dust and gave him life. And people are unique among all God's creation. Intellectually, people are rational, at least sometimes, volitional agents, and they have the capacity to reason and to choose and to think and to analyze even abstract concepts. And this is a reflection of the intellect of God, the mind that he's given us. Morally, people were created in innocence, and God declared all that he made as good. And the Bible says that not only eternity, but the law of God is written on the hearts of people. Emotionally, we have the ability to feel, and we have a range of emotions. Um, our emotions are not completely pure because of the fall, like God's are, but even so, that is something that, that identifies uh, part of what it means to be created in the image of God. And then, of course, socially, people were created for fellowship with God and for one another. So I want to say it this way. People are a special creation of God and not an evolutionary accident. Uh, Kenneth Samples outlined three primary views of the Imago Dei, and I think these are important because they help us think a little bit deeper uh, into what this means. He said, first of all, there's the resemblance view. It asserts that people possess a formal nature that serves to resemble God. Second is the relational view. People are most like God in their relational capacity. Third is the representative view. And it's more about what a person does than who a person is. Now, I would argue that, that the resemblance view is the foundation of our understanding. And from that, the relational and the representative views flow. But if you don't have the resemblance view that we've been created in, in the image of God, in his likeness, then the relational and the representative are not going to make as much sense. So what does it mean to be human? It means that we have a physical body and a spiritual component in our soul and our spirit, and therefore we have an inherent created purpose. Now, I want to speak to this specifically about the age of confusion that we live in. There is an ongoing direct attack 
on the idea of the image of God. Because if we don't even know or can't even discuss what it means to be a male or a female, or if people can just call themselves whatever they want themselves to be, that is absolutely inconsistent with the image of God. It is contrary to the image of God. And there is an assault currently going on. A lot of it comes from the political realm by people who don't have a biblical worldview. A lot of it comes from the principalities and the powers of darkness that want to confuse. Remember, the devil, his purpose is to steal, to kill, and destroy. And if he can pull something out, like the very basic underpinnings of what it means to be a human being, then chaos is going to follow. And that's what we're seeing in the culture. It's absolute trouble because of that. And that brings me to number three, which is chaos, and the question, what went wrong? When we think about what went wrong, we go back to the fall of man. Now, you'll note here that everything comes from the foundational book of Genesis, even to get this argument started, because it tells us about who God is, it tells us about where we came from, it tells us about God's intended purpose for us, and then it tells us about what went wrong and why there's the trouble that there is. The fall of man took place sometime after God created the world and after Satan's rebellion took place in heaven. Uh, God created Adam and Eve. He put them there in the Garden of Eden and everything they could possibly need was there. But there was only one prohibition. And in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work and to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man... You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will surely die. So at this point, Satan's been cast down to the earth because of his rebellion against God and his desire to be like God. He appeared to Eve in the form of a serpent and suggested to the woman that God had not really said what he said and was actually keeping something good from her. So she ate from it and gave some to Adam. Now, I, I want to I emphasize this point before I go any further. The question that the serpent asked of Eve in the garden is the same question that is being asked today and the same challenge that has been given throughout history since the fall, and that is, did God really say? Okay? We've got apostate churches that are using that question to totally turn what the biblical record is and totally turn what it even means to be a human being. We've got people that obviously don't, don't even know anything about the Bible. They're asking some of the same questions and it leads to confusion. And we know that Adam ate from it. In that moment, everything changed. Sin entered into God's perfect world. With it came brokenness and chaos. So the fall of man was caused by sin. What is sin? It's anything that we think, say, or do that is contrary to the character and to the word of God. The chaos brought with it the judgment of God, and the just punishment was eternal death. So when God said, on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die, he was speaking of a spiritual death. Now, obviously, there will be a physical death that will go along with that as part of the consequences of the fall, but there would be a spiritual death. And we know that Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. God placed a cherub to guard the entrance and ever since then, there's been suffering and toil and pain that are a part of the curse on the world because of sin. 
and we all suffer the consequences of the fall of man. Now, if that was the end of the story, we'd have a pretty sad story to tell. But early on, there was the promise of redemption. And it wasn't fully developed, but it was still there. And God foreshadowed a pardon for sin when he killed an animal and made garments for the man and the woman to cover their nakedness that had brought them shame. And God indicated what he would do thousands of years later in Jesus. In the promise of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3 and verse 15 is considered to be the first mention of the gospel. And even today, creation groans and cries out for renewal uh, and we all need to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what went wrong? People sinned and brought chaos to the world. That's what went wrong. Now I understand we're living in an age where people don't even want to call anything sin anymore. You, you could just about do the most heinous thing ever and, and a lot of people would, wouldn't give it to you that it was even sin to begin with. But if you're going to have a biblical worldview, this is part of your understanding to help you understand uh, the problem of suffering and the problem of brokenness in the world. And if you don't get this part, you're going to forever be confused about why things are in the state that they're in. And somehow in all of this, there's the mystery of free will that God has given to people, uh, even in, the, in their fallen condition, uh, to make decisions and choose paths and, and go in directions that they want to go in or don't want to go in. And I believe that God's sovereignty and the free will of man are not in contradiction to one another. Um, I, I think that God works both together, ultimately, to bring about his good purposes. Question number four is, is our purpose and why are we here? It's purpose and why are we here? Here's the very short answer, and then I want to build it out. You are here for a relationship with God. That's why you're here. That's why he made you. God created people for his glory. Our purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever and to have a relationship with him. But apart from redemption, it is impossible to glorify God. Why? Because sin separates Sin creates a barrier between us and God. Uh, there was a book that was released several years ago that uh, is a little bit more focused on uh, covenants and, and kind of the big picture of the narrative of Scripture, but it was entitled From Eden to the New Jerusalem. And it's an excellent little book, and there's a lot of good things in there. But just that concept, I've thought about that concept a lot, From Eden to the New Jerusalem. Now, why would there be a connection at all? Well, there are striking similarities between the Garden of Eden and what's going to be present in the New Jerusalem. Uh, there's a tree of life in the Garden of Eden. There's going to be a tree of life in the New Jerusalem. There are rivers that flow out of the Garden of Eden, and there's going to be out of the New Jerusalem. And when I think about this, I understand that the, the Garden of Eden had similarities to heaven, uh, but heaven is going to be even better because it will be in the eternal state. There won't be any opposition to it. There won't be any attack on it. Uh, there won't be any temptation brought into it. And we understand what God is preparing for us. And 
I love these verses in Revelation 22. Listen to Revelation 22, verse 3 through 5. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more, and people will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Just pause and think about the concept of the eternal presence of God without sin. It's, it's, hard to even, it's hard to even really think about. I can think about it in my head, but to really, really conceive of it and think about what that's going to be like is phenomenal. We were created for a purpose. Psalm 8 says, When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place... What is man that you remember him? Or a son of man that you look after him? You made him little, a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. So God created you for a purpose. God knit you together in your mother's womb. I don't understand how anybody could understand the creative power of God and how he knits us together in his mother's womb in our mother's womb and not be a champion for life like how contradictory is that in people's minds to think that god has done this but somehow people know better than god so we can do away with life if if we see fit if it's inconvenient for us that's not a biblical worldview that's anything but a biblical worldview we're created for a purpose we are also redeemed for a purpose. And this speaks back to the relationship aspect again because in John 17 and verse 3 it says, This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. God redeems you so that you might know him, so that you might have a relationship with him and receive the gift of eternal life. So you're created for a purpose, you're redeemed for a purpose, we are to live with a purpose. And I think this is, is life-changing as a concept as well because Colossians 3 and verse 23 and 24 says, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. That ought to change how you wake up and go to work in the morning. It ought to change how you treat other people. It ought to change how you serve in the church. Because it's the Lord to whom we're accountable. If he made us for a purpose and he redeemed us for a purpose and we are to live with a purpose, then it ought to be consistent with that. Why are we here? To know God and to bring glory to him eternally. Question number five relates to morality. And the question is, how are right and wrong determined? The biblical worldview believes that God is and has made himself known to us. So morality is determined by the character of God. The psalmist said the Lord is righteous and he loves justice. The righteousness of God means that he is always good, he is always right, and he is always just. God in his person is the ultimate standard. And he's the one who defines 
morality. Psalm 92 and verse 15 says, The Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. If we are created in the image of God, and if God is a moral being, and he is, then we were created to be moral beings. There's a logical connection here. I want to restate that just so you hear where I'm headed with it. If we are created in the image of God, and we are, and if God is a moral being, and he is, and perfect in his righteousness, then we were created to be moral beings. God, in his character, defines morality, and then morality is communicated in the word of God. Psalm 119 and 160 says, the entirety of your word is truth. Each of your righteous judgments endure forever. Now remember, we talk a lot about truth as it relates to a lot of different subjects. And the simplest definition of truth is that truth is that which corresponds to reality. So it's not what somebody's made up. It's not a social construct. It's not a, an opinion by majority. It's not a political movement. It is what responds or what corresponds to reality. And someone said that the competitor to biblical morality today is social consensus. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But the problem with that is that the foundation of social consensus is shifting sands. Ethics are viewed as relative. And that is a major problem. Moses wrote in Exodus 23 and verse 2, uh, speaking of God's command to the people, Thou shalt not follow a multitude of evil. Now, what was the context of that? God's revealed his will to the Israelites through Moses. He tells them what they should do and what they should not do. What did they do ultimately? They disobeyed God. But here's my point. God made it clear that the majority is not the arbiter of what is right and wrong. God is. God's word, admittedly, does not address every situation in life, but there are principles in God's word that can be applied to every situation in life. So while every single circumstance not, is not outlined, there are principles that apply to every single circumstance. How is right and wrong determined? By the character of God and by the word of God. And that leads me to the sixth and final question for the evening, and it relates to destiny. What happens to people when they die? Now, we know that there is life after death. Job asked, if a man dies, shall he live again? He was in a little bit of desperation when he asked that question, and it was more of a rhetorical question than anything. But we know intuitively in our hearts that this world's not the end. At death, the human ceases to function, but the spiritual part of us lives on. Ultimately, the body's going to be resurrected as well, but the spiritual part lives on, and the scripture is clear to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord, and, and that's in, in an instant. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7 says, The dust returns to the ground it came from, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. So what are the ultimate realities? The ultimate realities are heaven and hell. Uh, Jesus said in John 3 and verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Your eternal destiny and mine is determined by whether or not our faith is in Jesus. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, for forgiveness of our sins, for eternal life. This is why the gospel is necessary. 
Heaven is a real place. You say, where is heaven? It's where God is. It's a place of eternal joy and peace in the presence of God. And I know God's everywhere. God's omnipresent. But I'm speaking in terms of the place from which God rules and reigns the universe. I'm speaking of the place that Jesus promised he was going to prepare for us and he would come again and receive us to himself that where he is there, we will be also. That's the heaven that I'm talking about. And that's the hope of every believer. So while we look at all the brokenness and we look at all the chaos, the hope is heaven. And the way to secure that hope is through faith in Jesus. And by the same token, hell is a real place and it represents eternal separation from God. The wicked and unbelieving will be sent there and the punishment for sin is infinite according to what the Bible teaches. Somebody said the punishment of the wicked in hell is as never-ending as the bliss of the righteous in heaven. I was thinking about this today, and I, I, I thought of these two uh, statements that I think kind of synthesize this whole point. Those in heaven will know they are there by the grace and the mercy of God and will take no credit for being there. Those who are in hell will know they are there in the final accounting because of their sin and will have nobody else to blame. And I think both are going to be equally as clear and as evident. What happens to people when they die? The answer is they go immediately into the eternal presence of God as their faith is in Jesus, and they go immediately to the place of suffering if their faith is not in Jesus. Now, let me give you some short ideas here about the importance of a biblical worldview as I conclude uh, this particular lesson. First of all, a biblical worldview is important for confidence and growth in the faith and for living for God in the world. So a lot of times we think about a biblical worldview in the, uh, from the perspective of being able to maybe win an argument or talk to somebody else about what we believe or just to get our point across or whatever. That's not the number one benefit for us as believers. The number one benefit is that we have confidence and we can grow in our faith and we can live for God in the world because we understand who God is and what he expects of us. And we can just have a calm confidence about us because of that. Secondly, a biblical worldview is important for evangelism and reaching those who do not know God. So as we share this biblical worldview, we're not just trying to dump information on people. We're trying to tell them about how God has changed our lives, about how he can change theirs, about how he's a good and a gracious God. He's a faithful father, and he has a purpose for us. We want people to know that and to experience that. We want them to step into the love of God for themselves, and that's why it's so important for evangelism and reaching those who don't know God. And then finally, a biblical worldview is important for the health and holiness of churches and for God's eternal glory. For the health and holiness of churches and for God's eternal glory. You know what things that sometimes happens to churches? They just lose focus. They, they start off in a good way, but they lose focus. And it happens to entire denominations. Happens to individuals, of course. But it, you don't have to look far to find churches and denominations that started off under the authority of the word of God believe the very things that I communicated you to, to you tonight 
And what they promote now might as well be a mystery religion because it's so far from anything that resembles a biblical worldview. God help us that that would not be the case for us as individuals, and God help us that that would never be the case for our church either. Let's bow our heads together as we pray, and I look forward to continuing on in this study as we get into a lot of application and um, practical aspects of it that we can implement in our lives. Father, I thank you tonight that you have shown yourself to us through uh, general revelation and through the revelation of your word and ultimately through the revelation of your son who took on flesh and dwelt among us. Lord, we honor you tonight and, and I realize even in trying to describe with human words um, the Trinity and, and uh, who you are, Father, Son, and Spirit, that... Um, Lord, I, I've done that with a, a spirit of understanding of us trying to, to build and grow our faith in you. But at the same time, Lord, your ways are higher than our ways. And, and Lord, if we could fully explain these things in simplistic terms, then you would cease to be God. So we are in awe of you. We thank you that you've not left us without a revelation, though, so that we might know you. I don't know what everybody's spiritual condition here is in this place or to those that might listen to the message later on. But I pray if there are any who, who are here or who listen later who don't yet have a relationship with you, that they would know that they've not been created uh, by accident, but with a purpose to know you, to have a relationship with you, to be redeemed uh, through the finished work of Jesus. And I pray that they would put their faith and trust in you and pursue a biblical worldview that would help them live life in a way that would be peaceful and would also honor you uh, with uh, our lives. Uh, bless us, Lord, now as the worship ministry will be gathering and then the remainder of this week, keep our focus on you and, Lord, be honored and glorified. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you, and uh, we'll see you hopefully on Sunday and hopefully see some of you at the church picnic as well if you're around. And it uh, should be a great time.